One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. The militia has encamped in Meriden. This means a lot of handsome soldiers are in town, and Kitty and Lydia are thrilled. Meanwhile, Jane gets a letter from Netherfield. She's been invited to spend the day with Mr. Bingley's sisters. Bingley and Darcy won't be home, but this is a chance for Jane to further ingratiate herself to the Bingley clan. So Mrs. Bennett takes the invitation as an opportunity for forward motion on the battlefield of marriage for Jane. Jane shouldn't just go, but she should also go without a carriage so that if it starts raining, she'll be stuck there. Mrs. Bennett gets what she asks for and then some. Jane gets soaked through and comes down with a terrible cold. Lizzie gets a letter from Jane telling her not to worry, but that she's really sick. Lizzie immediately walks the three miles through the mud to get to Jane, not waiting for any horses or carriages. When Lizzie arrives, it turns out that Jane is even sicker than she had let on. So Lizzie is going to stay at Netherfield to nurse Jane, and a servant is sent to Longbourn to get some belongings for her. Not to be overly sentimental, but Chapter 7 of Pride and Prejudice changed me. This is when we find out that Lizzie is, quote, a great walker. I decided right when I read that for the first time at 15 years old that being a great walker was something that I was going to be too. We don't love Lizzie because she's a great reader or a great beauty. We love her because she says, three miles is no distance at all when one has a purpose and doesn't care how dirty her hems get on the road to her sister. In our next chapter, we see Lizzie's experience at Netherfield during Jane's convalescence. In the house are Lizzie, Bingley, Darcy, Bingley's two sisters, Caroline and Mrs. Hurst, and Mrs. Hurst's husband, Mr. Hurst. When Jane naps, Lizzie comes downstairs to spend time with her hosts out of a sense of politeness. But as soon as Lizzie leaves the room, the group starts talking about her behind her back. Bingley's sisters exclaim how ridiculous it was for Lizzie to walk three whole miles to see her sick sister. And not only did she walk, but, the sisters argue, she looked ridiculous when she arrived. Her petticoats were six inches deep in mud. Darcy gets teased by Caroline about how frightful Lizzie looked after this walk. She asks him if the sight of her ruined his attraction. 
He says, on the contrary, it made Lizzie even more attractive to him. Darcy, the text tells us, says very little, but he is emerging more and more as the love interest and hero of the novel in this pivotal scene. Here's Professor Ramachandran again about why we are finding ourselves interested in Darcy, even though he doesn't say much. There's a lot, I think, that makes him incredibly attractive, precisely because he's the paradigm of the tall, dark, stormy, but doesn't talk a lot kind of man that every woman thinks that she can somehow like harness to her desires. But we get actually very little about his own interiority, actually almost nothing. And that allows for all the women in the novel to project onto him what they want to see. I understand what Professor Ramachandran is saying. But I think that Darcy shows us quite a bit in this scene. He defends Lizzie to the Bingley sisters. We find out that he cares about his sister. He doesn't embellish or perform. Here is Sandra McPherson, associate professor in the Department of English at Ohio State University. She talks about how she reads Darcy as he is emerging as the hero of the story. You'll hear her dog in the background, who heartily agrees with her. So I've looked at recent work on Pride and Prejudice and a lot of new work on questions of masculinity, questions of class difference, questions of race and masculinity in the film and especially in its adaptations. And that's all really wonderful work. And I love the work of critique and the critique of Darcy as this sort of bad object of aristocratic privilege. But I think that it's missing something about what Austen's intentions are with Darcy. And for me, the, the Kantianism of the novel, the, you know, the way that Darcy represents someone who is ethical without being sentimental, I think is a really important feature of the novel and something that I wouldn't want to get lost in you know, the criticism that is focused on Darcy's economic and gendered privilege. By Kantianism, McPherson is referring to the 18th century philosopher Immanuel Kant. I have a lot of problems with Kant, but Kant argued that we are obligated to strangers by virtue of a moral law meaning that we can't treat others as a means to an end, but need to treat everyone as an end to themselves. Kant was thinking about the fact that people tend to treat people who they know and love better than those who they don't. He thought that was a problem because, for example, slavery is wrong, even if you don't know the people who are enslaved. Kant is a moral absolutist, who doesn't believe that ethics and sentiment should have anything to do with one another. I'm not sure I'm convinced by this argument that we should see Darcy as a Kantian ideal any more than the argument that Darcy is a screen we can project anything onto. I love both professors Ramachandran and McPherson's points of view, but I would argue that Darcy is, at this point in the novel, indecipherable, not blank, not overly moral, but full of contradictions. Lizzie doesn't like it downstairs without Jane. She's too poor to gamble with those who gamble. She's too distracted to read. 
She finds everyone snobbish and boring, except Bingley, who seems genuinely concerned for Jane, which Lizzie loves. She mostly tries to tune out the conversation around her, but she hears one that draws her in. Bingley, Caroline, and Darcy are discussing what makes a woman qualified as accomplished. Darcy and Miss Bingley's ridiculously high standards make her burst out. It's just too much to expect of any single woman. The chapter ends with every character at Netherfield being the picture of a trope. Jane is the picture of the beautiful sick girl. Lizzie is the good sister and the feisty heroine. Bingley is the adoring lover, worried about Jane. Mr. Hurst is probably thinking about food. And the Bingley sisters are Cinderella's catty sisters, pretending to be worried about Jane to impress the prince. But they still have the energy to demonstrate their accomplishments on the pianoforte. And Mr. Darcy, well, he says very little. I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And I'm Lauren Sandler. And this is Live from Pemberley from Hot and Bothered. Before we get into some historical grounding here, I can't help myself (laughs) but wanting to take a moment to just think about this Kantian reading of morals and Darcy. There's just, I just wanted to add one very typically me moment, which is thinking about the unequal systems between genders here, right? I mean, it's one thing for Immanuel Kant to say, let's treat everyone as though we need nothing from them. It's one thing for Darcy to be able to just sort of float through the world needing nothing from no one because he's incredibly wealthy. It would be wonderful for the women in this book to have the same privilege, for the system to not exist so that women have no choice but to need things from these men. And I just think, I think that's worth noting. I feel like that's so much of what this book is about, is who gets to be unequally disinterested here. So I agree. My problem with Kant is the moral absolutism of all of his claims, right? And I think that one of the reasons we love Darcy is because he's fighting with that, but chooses to not be a moral absolutist. He thinks there's a morality to marrying within his class, and he goes beneath his class. He thinks that there's a morality to completely kicking Wickham out of his life, and then he realizes that it's more complicated than that. I think that Darcy is actually an argument for a non-Kantian way of life. I think he starts off as this moral absolutist, and what we watch is the unraveling of that. And it's funny to think of Austen coming out of a culture where this is in the discourse, people are wrestling with these ideas, and then she writes Mary. And I know in so many ways we're such Mary stands, but pretty much Mary's role so far, and we'll continue in this vein, is to pop up and sort of spout these moral absolutes. And Austen writes her as this ridiculous comic figure. And while I think us bookish girls tend to respond to her in something that we can relate to, it does make me wonder just within this conversation if Mary is sort of a play on that a little bit about how absurd it is to be adhering to these absolutes as declarations completely outside of one's actual behavior, outside of one's context and outside of one's system. 
I mean, and Austin also disagrees with this notion of we should care about the stranger as much as we care about our family, right? I think that there's a way to argue that that is a beautiful idea about empathy and about no one should be a slave and it doesn't matter whether or not I know them. But Lizzie cares more about Jane than she does about Lydia and Austin doesn't think Lydia deserves a second glance. And so I love that Professor McPherson is pointing us to one of the philosophers that Austin was most likely in conversation with in her head. And I love the way that Austin is like, sometimes yes, and sometimes no. I think this also connects us to our what do we need to know this week? Because what I wanted to talk about was the militia. And it's it's reminding me right now of a real shift that happened while Austin was writing this book. So in 1795, there was still this requirement that if you're going to serve in a militia, you need to be a property owner. Because the thought was that if you didn't have property to protect, why would you be fighting for England at all? That it needed to be your own in order to guard it. And at this point, not only is Jane Austen drafting her book as this law is changing, but it's changing because The French are kicking everyone's butts in this spreading revolution. The English are absolutely scared out of their wits because invasion is feeling imminent. You know, they've suffered huge losses in the West Indies and in the Low Countries. And during this moment in the Napoleonic Wars, up until about 1796, when Austin is writing, about one out of every 18 Englishmen is balloted to be in the militia. And that year, things get so bad that it becomes one in six. This is like a huge shift. And within that shift, it's completely unreasonable to think that every one of these men should be a property owner. I mean, it's actually entirely reasonable. It's what <laughs> it's what yeah. greater <laughs> equality would look like. But in this moment of England, you know, what they need are bodies. And so all of a sudden, in this moment of real threat, you know, what's simmering outside these drawing rooms and outside England is this sudden wartime panic, which means that tons of men enlist, and they are men who are not there because they have property to look out for. They're there to make a buck. And all of a sudden, things adjust so that officers are landed, but the rest of the regiment isn't. So this vision that these men in uniform are somehow the answer, they're certainly fetching, but all of a sudden, they are not what Mrs. Bennett remembers from her younger days lusting after these uniformed soldiers, or perhaps what Jane Austen herself remembers, because we know that she would go to the assemblies with militiamen in Devon when she was 16. And she knew this all very well. She had two brothers who were career officers, Francis and Charles. Her brother Henry was an officer in the militia. So this is all very close to home, and it's also signifying a major social shift in England. But Mrs. Bennett does seem to know that these local militia are a nice distraction for Kitty and Lydia, but that these aren't the people that they should end up with. She says, like, when I was young, I thought that the men in the red coats were cute, too. And I wouldn't mind, right, if there was a colonel that showed up, right? But she doesn't, I don't think she sees these militiamen as an answer to the possibility of 
the problem of marrying off any of her daughters, right? She's still focused on Bingley for Jane. Sure. And Bingley money and Bingley temperament is a totally different thing than who Kitty and Lydia will be dancing with. Getting back to this Kantian idea and bringing it to Mrs. Bennett, you know, I, I think that she is in some ways the opposite of what that morality is, right? She knows that the only way for her daughters to survive is to look at men as a means. And she knows that, as you so rightly put it, she needs to wage this battle for her own property in that sense as a truly concerned party. And so, you know, on the one hand, the fact that she's so conniving about how to get Jane out there without cover so that she'll be caught in the rain. It is exactly the sort of behavior that Darcy in chapter eight decries as the thing that he can't stand about someone when when they are devious about trying to to get something out of someone and, and conniving a situation to make it so. But again, this is the system. I do think that that little, that little wink about her saying that she would love to get a colonel for one of her daughters does belie how ridiculous Austin thinks that she is in some moments. But this is sort of what I'm loving about so many of these characterizations is that no one is just one thing, right? And this is where the notion of prejudice comes in. We could see Mrs. Bennet as purely ridiculous if we just knew the first page of the book. But as we learn more about the circumstances, the less ridiculous she becomes. And yet she's still very silly in many ways. She still is a goose flapping her wings. I actually think that Austin is setting up some of the stakes for what she finds ridiculous and what she doesn't at the very beginning of chapter seven. The text tells us that Kitty and Lydia are both really excited that these militia men have come to town. And Mr. Bennett says, from all that I can collect by your manner of talking about how handsome these guys are, you must be two of the silliest girls in the country. I've suspected it from some time and am now convinced. And then the next line is, Catherine was disconcerted and made no answer, but Lydia, with perfect indifference, continued to express her admiration of Captain Carter. I often see Kitty and Lydia as sort of one entity, like one giggling, flirty entity until Lydia gets whisked off to Brighton for Act 3 of the novel. But in this, I think that Austin is showing us a little bit of the difference. That Kitty is someone who feels some shame about being called out as silly and doesn't want to be and is like, oh, and this made no answer is a moment of introspection, whereas Lydia just like continues to talk. And I think that this again and again is going to be one of the things that Austin judges people on is whether or not they are willing to change, whether or not they are willing to look inside and be like, oh, am I silly? Lady Catherine de Berg, Mr. Collins, they like absolutely cannot change. Lydia, I think. Someone like Kitty, I think Austin is saying she's not as silly. She's not as ridiculous. Look at her. She She's a thinker. There's something going on inside that brain. And I personally have such a different impulse about this, which this will not surprise you in any way. But Lydia's like defiant owning herself and her desire to me is such a show of strength. 
especially at age 15. And that I feel like Kitty's wondering if she's just being swept up with Lydia or if there's another place that her allegiance should be. There is an element of that shame, but I also feel like that doesn't necessarily make her a stronger character or a stronger woman to me. I don't know, Lauren. I'm embarrassed about this. I obviously want people to love themselves and to, when they know themselves, to live unapologetically. But I love that Kitty is in a place where she's like, oh, I don't totally know myself yet, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I'm 16. Is it silly for me to be really into these guys? And it is, right? Like, this is just a group of unknown men who... I am very skeptical of large groups of men in uniform. (laughs) Like, we have no reason to think that this is a group of moral men. And her father is saying this is silly. I hope, I hope that, you know, she feels free to then come to the conclusion, oh, no, it's not silly. This town is boring as fuck. And, like, there's finally something to do and talk about around here. Or to say, do you know what? Fair enough. Like they have come into our lives and are going to go out of our lives and like we don't know them. And I think either conclusion is a completely valid conclusion, but I do love Kitty's moment of self-reflection. And if the conclusion she comes to is to heck with it, I'm going to go spend time in the milliner shop. I don't think anyone can accuse me of not loving frivolous things. Boy, do I love a frivolous thing. But I do think it has to be chosen. And I love that we see Kitty, pause. I think that you're raising something which is really interesting here, which I'm sure we will continue to talk about through this whole book. But we're meeting all these different people at different moments of their own adolescent development, mm-hmm. right? I mean, yeah. we've got this whole range that, especially when it's when it's about the girls, if we include Charlotte in that. You know, we've got from age 15 to age 27 here. We've got a range of temperaments, a range of how they're perceived by other people, and also how they're trying to find their own way inside themselves. And it's very subtle. Like, there are these little moments of dialogue, just like the one that you've pointed out. But I think that Austin does this really great job of giving us a range of ways of developing and ways of desiring, ways of knowing oneself. And I certainly do not think that we should all be Lydia. Later on, you will see that I don't even think that Lydia should be Lydia. (laughs) (laughs) But in this moment, I just want to say, I'm tying on a bonnet and heading to that ball. (laughs) I mean, but so is Lizzie, right? When we first meet her, Mm -hmm. she's trimming a bonnet. Mm -hmm. And I, I love that about Lizzie. She likes silly things. She actually makes an argument later in Chapter 8 with Darcy being like, why do you want women to be so perfect? Like, I don't know any woman who's that perfect. Stop it. She does something else, too, around that conversation, which is she says that she's not much of a reader. It's a really puzzling moment for me because it's it's in this moment of dialogue about the vastness of Pemberley's library and Bingley talking about how few books his newly wealthy father had versus the generations that Darcy has inherited. And there is something about the ostentatiousness of how they talk about books in that moment and also about our heroine sort of distancing herself from the act of reading that I find quite puzzling here. Obviously, You're probably a lover of books if you're reading this. (laughs) 
And therefore, there's an element of you that I think might think, unlike Jane Eyre, where, you know, we meet Jane in the window seat with the book. We are we are sitting as Jane is. She is us. There's this moment where we're ostensibly really focused on this book while Lizzie is having a hard time focusing on a book, in part because what is happening outside the pages of the book is so damn interesting. But also, instead of being tethered to a book and inside a library, why we're falling in love with Lizzie, and indeed why Darcy is, is because she is walking three miles through the mud. Her hair is wild. She's out in the world. She's alive. You know, Darcy talks about the importance of cultivating the mind, but it is Lizzie's mind in her quick wit, Lizzie's mind in her, you know, determination to just set off and see to her sister, that is the mind that he is most drawn to here and not the affected mind. And it does make me wonder what Austen's relationship was to people who saw themselves as great readers or who valued collecting volumes of literature. I mean, I think Austin made fun of everyone, (laughs) even herself, right? (laughs) Like, she was like, I love books. I know. I don't know whether or not that's virtuous because they're bad books. But I I love this moment where Darcy sort of talks about his library. Caroline Bingley is like, you have a great library, Mr. Darcy, don't you? And you can just see her, like, leaning down and showing off her boobs at the (laughs) same time. And Darcy, I think, does this, like, really great, like, materialist analysis. He's like, yeah, I should. We've had it for generations. Like she's comparing Darcy to her brother and is like, isn't it a shame my brother doesn't buy more books? And Darcy's like, I don't necessarily buy a lot of books. My family's been collecting them for generations. I think it's my job to keep up this library. So I buy books, but right, like it's a longstanding tradition in his family. So he's separating himself from that comparison. And then the same with Lizzie in this moment, right? Lizzie is just being projected upon, which I think is why she maybe says, I'm not a great reader. I don't think we find out one way or another if she's a great reader in this moment because she can't afford to play cards. They are playing at too high of stakes for her, or she at least assumes that they are. And so Mr. Hurst, who we know is like very base and boring and only likes to like gamble and eat, says, oh, do you prefer reading to cards? That is very singular. And then Lizzie doesn't answer. Caroline Bingley answers for her and says, Miss Eliza Bennett despises cards. She's a great reader and has no pleasure in anything else. And Lizzie's like, (laughs) I don't, you, this is, girl, you don't know me. And she's like, I deserve neither such praise nor such censure. I am not a great reader and I have pleasure in many things. So I think that, yeah, I'm very curious if Lizzie is also a great reader I just don't think this conversation is about reading. Well, I also think that Caroline Bingley is not talking about the quality of the books in a man's library, but the size of his library. (laughs) (laughs) And when there's this great quip from her brother from Bingley in which she's saying, why don't you have a library as big as Darcy's? And he essentially says, well, if you want the library, you're going to have to figure out how to buy the Darcy. (laughs) (laughs) You're not getting the library for free, unlike the milk. I mean, and Caroline Bingley, as far as ridiculousness, is just fascinating to me, right? She has so much hypocrisy of being simultaneously anti-woman, like being a bad sister 
in feminism while claiming that Lizzie is one, right? Even when she invites Jane to Netherfield, what she says is, Jane, you have to come. My sister and I are alone all day, and two women together all day will kill each other, right? Like, you can't leave two women alone together all day. And then when Lizzie leaves the room, she's like, you know, Lizzie Bennett is the kind of woman who likes to make herself better by insulting other women. And it's like, "Mm, actually, that's you. And so it's the ridiculousness of this social climbing and how we are meant to laugh at her because she's going so baldly for Darcy. We are meant to laugh at her. I think that as someone who came of age in the 80s, this trope, this sort of nasty rich girl, I cannot prove this. I should look into this, but I'm going to say it regardless. I believe that this is a trope that Austen has invented, that beyond Darcy, beyond so many things that we have inherited from this book that have stayed in our culture, the Caroline Bingley figure is so precise and so exact and shows up in every John Hughes movie. And I know this girl, and I hate this girl, and I fear this girl, and yet here she is, and Lizzie's the one who really is going to be so victorious over her just by being her own wild, witty, quippish, brilliant self, and that is a win for all of us. Yeah, and I think, you know, our close reading moment for today can get us into that. So the the sentence that we want to look closely at is, Eliza Bennett, said Miss Bingley, when the door was closed on her, is one of those young ladies who seek to recommend themselves to the other sex by undervaluing their own. And with many men, I dare say it succeeds. But in my opinion, it is a paltry device of very mean art. And this is one of those lines that, for me, I feel like I'm like a cartoon character whose eyes are like slot machines. I'm like, there's so many meanings to this sentence, right? Because Austin is making fun of herself. Austin is trying to recommend herself to readers by undervaluing a member of her own sex, Caroline Bingley. And of course, Caroline is also doing the thing that she is accusing Lizzie of doing, And I actually think Lizzie is innocent of this. I don't think Lizzie only wants to talk shit about women in order to better herself in the eyes of others. So the ironyometer on this is definitely a 10 out of 10. And I don't know, right? Like this is the kind of thing that makes me feel sort of two ways. One is I like women who love each other. And I like depictions of women who love each other. And I often think it's lazy writing when there's like a love triangle and the reason that you're rooting for one of the girls to win is because the other one is vapid and bad and only cares about clothes and gossip, right? Like, Because I don't know a lot of women who are actually like that. But then I do know some women who maybe aren't like that, but make me feel small in all of those ways. And so this depiction of Caroline Bingley makes me feel seen, right? Like, I remember the way that girls in middle school were mean girls and would bully and were just not kind to one another. And so I think maybe by poking fun at that idea and Jane Austen saying to the world, look, we see what you're doing, it is actually 
good for women, but I am like of a million minds on this quote. I also think this is also a question of relative privilege. Primarily, when we talk about women doing this, women putting each other down so that they can lift themselves up, that is very much because of a whole system in which women are already existing on a field that has far less power. And so it's a scrappy game. And so on the one hand, I think that there is an element of this, which is about where people find their power tearing each other down, which is a delicious element of this book as satire. But there's also an element of self-effacement that you're talking about here because of the irony. It also is reminding me of, you know, the Caroline Bingley from my school, who I remember, who very much did treat me this way. I remember seeing her at a high school reunion in which she and I talked for a long time about the death of her mother and some other struggles in her life. And it was like our first heart to heart. And at the end of this conversation, she owned how much she mistreated me in high school and said, you know, I have thought about it and I still don't know what it was. I don't know why it was that I needed to treat you that way. I have puzzled over it for decades since then. And this is someone who had all the wealth, all the beauty, all the popularity. But the fact that it has plagued her, I think is what is most interesting. I wonder what Caroline Bingley's inner life is, of course, when she goes back to her room after this conversation, if she feels some guilt, if she feels some shame, or if she feels like unless she figures out how to make Pemberley her house, she will be as screwed within some version of what the Bennets are facing as anyone else, because she too will not be the male heir of an estate. Yeah, I I feel for Caroline because this is the thing she was raised to fight for. And she's been cutthroat in the job search. She is like the better option for Darcy on paper. And this girl is coming in and taking her man. Right. And all she has done is become accomplished in exactly the ways that she was told to do. Mm -hmm. Right. She has followed the guidebook. She has learned French. She can sing a duet. She can play the pianoforte. She can, you know, trot out all of these seemingly irrelevant <laughs> qualities to attract someone who really doesn't care about it at all. And she just did what she was told. But now she realizes that that's under threat, that her beauty and her accomplishments may not be enough to seal the deal, that in fact, there's some ineffable thing that you can't be taught by a governess, which is having that impulse to walk, having something to say that isn't mocking or teasing or expected in a room. And that's part of why I think we love Lizzie so much is because she throws out the rule book and she shows up as herself. And that's the most threatening thing in the world. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. So can we talk a little bit about some of the love in this chapter? Because there's some really, I think, beautiful loving moments in the chapter. There's obviously like Bingley's profound care for Jane. The chapter ends by saying that Mr. Bingley could find no better relief to his feelings than by giving his housekeeper directions that every attention might be paid to the sick lady and her sister. Like he just really is worried about Jane and cares a lot about her and is wants to be a really good host to Lizzie because it'll make Jane happier. And also he seems to just care about Lizzie and about being a good sport. And I don't know if I were Lizzie, I'd be like, lock this one down, Jane. Anyone who wants to take good care of my family, like what a wonderful sign of love. It's interesting to me that we aren't told that he's going to have to overcome this massive class barrier to love Jane that we're told that Darcy would have to overcome to love Lizzie, right? I mean, this comes up so strongly and fascinatingly in Chapter 8 about how Lizzie would be so dangerous if she wasn't from such a poor family. And yet, here we are with the sister from the same poor family receiving all of Bingley's attentions, and that seems to be okay with everyone. It puzzles me, and I find that whole class discussion terrifying and absolutely brilliantly etched, and of course sets up everything that Darcy's going to have to overcome in himself to love Lizzie. But I do wonder, do we think it's just because Darcy's wealth and standing is so much greater than Bingley's that for someone who's a little nouveau riche, Jane isn't too far to fall, but for Darcy, it's just unthinkable? I think it's exactly that. And I think the Bingleys are un they are not landed, right? They are wealthy, but they do not own land. And Bingley is like, I don't even really care about buying in this lifetime. I really like Netherfield, right? And he's just starting the library, whereas Darcy has generations of a library to protect. And so I think he feels this greater sense of duty and that he needs a woman who's been trained how to manage a house like that, which is a job. And Bingley doesn't need a woman who's trained in how to run a house like that. He needs, like, a fun partner. And so I do think the stakes are very different. The conversation that I I think you're talking about, right, is when Lizzie's not in the room 
And again, Caroline is trying to bring down the Bennets. And she's like, I heard that they have a lot of family members in Cheapside. And Mr. Bingley says, I don't care how many family members they have in Cheapside. They're lovely. And it doesn't impact their loveliness. And Mr. Darcy doesn't disagree. He says, but it does impact their ability to find a good match. And that is just true. And I actually find it refreshing for, you know, someone to acknowledge his privilege and the lack of privilege that these young women have access to. He's not saying, and that's a good thing that they don't. He's just reporting the truth of their lack of privilege. And I found it refreshing in Darcy and really knowledgeable about his own privilege. I agree with you. And it is, I think, showing the weight of the world that he will have to overturn to find himself trusting his heart. Like, I'm definitely not saying, like, pour one out for, you know, poor Fitzwilliam Darcy here. <laughs> it's the ultimate poor little rich boy story. And mm-hmm. yet, I think that Austin does a good job of setting us up for it. Yeah. Lauren, one last place that I think we should talk about in terms of love and power, maybe, is I think we're starting to see the ways that Darcy and Lizzie are suited for each other. Insofar as in this chapter, in chapter eight, Lizzie gets called proud, which we know is the word that's been bandied about in regards to Darcy. Yeah, she's called, her manners are pronounced to be very bad indeed, a mixture of pride and impertinence. Yes, thank you. And I just think that it's not making a grand argument about love, but it is making an argument about like these two people who don't like each other actually have a lot in common. And that might actually be why they don't like each other sometimes. I'm now really thinking about the word impertinence and feeling how through this chapter, her impertinence seems to have met its match in some way. You know, that it doesn't feel like impertinence when they're actually talking. It feels like two minds that are thrilled by each other. You know, there's that element of Jane and Rochester in here from from Jane Eyre that we were so excited about last season. And I think that just like feeling enlivened dialogue between an impertinent heroine and her romantic foil. I mean, like that to me, that's the love language of literature so often. And it takes what is being talked about about her in terms of her pride and impertinence. And it it brings it into relationship with Darcy in a way where it feels animating instead of, of judgmental in some way. Well, Lauren, next week we are reading chapters 9, 10, 11, and 12, and we are going to finish our time at Netherfield. Is there anything that you are particularly excited about? I'm excited about two things. I am excited to feel Darcy falling hard in the next couple chapters. I am also anticipating the claustrophobia, the entrapment that I start feeling at Netherfield, and I am excited (laughs) to get the hell out. (laughs) How about you? Poor Lizzie. I know that feeling where you're like, I just want to drink my coffee silently. I agree. I mean, the book just keeps ramping up the romance, so obviously I'm here for it. So 
So with the arrival of the militia in this week's chapters and with an eye toward their growing presence in Pride and Prejudice, we thought it would be a good time to do a little bit more historical contextualization around the British militia in Austin's times. So we're going to give Tim Fulford a call. Tim is a professor in English at De Montfort University in Leicester. His research lies in the area of literature in the Romantic era in the context of colonialism, exploration, science, and religion. And he has written, in my opinion, the definitive article about the militia and Pride and Prejudice called Sighing for a Soldier, Jane Austen and Military Pride and Prejudice. So let's get him on the phone. Tim, thank you so much for joining us. We are a really big fan of your article on this topic. And so my first question for you is just, what do you think, writ large, our listeners need to know about the British military context in the time of Jane Austen's writing? How big was the military? What kind of people joined the military? How did the English feel about the military? Go. I think the important thing to know about Pride and Prejudice is that The military who feature in Pride and Prejudice are not the regular army. There'd been a long tradition in Britain that you do not have a large regular army stationed at home because that's what despotic nations do. They use the army to rule the country. But from the 1750s in the Seven Years' War, the British passed a militia act which allowed, as it were, amateur soldiers to be recruited in each locality of the country in order to supplement the regular army if needed, mostly abroad, but also they could be used at home to put down disturbances and keep the peace. And they were used in that way in the 1790s in Ireland quite a lot when there were rebellions by the Irish Catholics. Um, And it wasn't organised centrally. It was left to landowners in each county to raise a militia. And uh, they did that by essentially having a random ballot so you could be picked. And if the, your ballot came up and you were chosen to be in the militia, you either had to go and serve or you had to provide a substitute. So if it was me and I was a, a wealthy middle-class cloth merchant, for instance, I'd probably be sending one of my servants or a poor person from the town to serve instead of me, and I would pay him to do so. So what tended to happen with the militia was that you had aristocrats in charge and doing the recruiting and then an awful lot of poor labourers as the actual soldiers. The other rules about the militia that are kind of relevant to Pride and Prejudice are that a local militia was not supposed to serve in the area in which it had been recruited. That was so if there were disturbances the militia wouldn't be um, keeping law and order amongst their own relatives and people they knew. That makes sense. That's so interesting. So what would Austin's exposure have been to the military? I mean, with the French Revolution and the Napoleonic Wars, there's a lot of war going on around England at this time. Right. With a very brief interval for her entire writing career. So constantly that was in the news. And she makes remarks in her letters about you know, how terrible it is that uh, so many people are being killed at sea and then in battles in Spain, but how delightful it is that one doesn't know any of these people because then one doesn't have to be devastated by grief. Slightly ironic (laughs) black humour in her letters. 
Yeah. So she knew about war in that way that that everybody did. Everybody is losing relatives. Everybody's reading the newspapers uh, about these very bloody battles. And the other way she knew about war was because the militia were visible in Hampshire and also in Kent. And indeed, one of her brothers Mm. kept uh, trying to join the militia and she very much hoped he was going to continue failing. But she had two brothers in the military, right? Do you think that their experiences are reflected in Pride and Prejudice? Not really. I think, um, you know, the Jane Austen's brothers in the Navy, that background is is there in persuasion. And clearly she mm-hmm. knows a lot about naval officers and the way they think and speak. No, I think what we can see in Pride and Prejudice is very much about the militia rather than the regular army. I mean, the, the militia in Pride and Prejudice are anything but heroic. They spend their time right. whining and dining at balls, wearing uniform. One of the first things we see about the militia is that, extraordinarily, Lydia gets one of the corporals dressed up in women's clothes. So as an image of what the military might be like whilst you're fighting a a long war with France, this looks completely self-indulgent and and trivial. So that's, I think, an important perspective that, that we get early on about the militia and whether it's likely to provide responsible and serious young men for the Bennets to marry. And is this picture that Austin is painting typical of how the militia is thought of culturally at this moment? Or is she offering like a counter narrative or is this like a hot take? Well, as you saw in the article I wrote some time ago, I'm suggesting that there's quite a lot of ambivalence about the militia at the time. It certainly provided a stock of eligible, sometimes handsome young men wearing attractive uniforms in your locality that had never been there before. If you're living in some country area as a young woman, you didn't really get out very much. You didn't get to London very much. There weren't very many suitors or interesting men. So it provided a source of that social mobility and romantic mobility. That has its dangers, of course, which ones are reliable and which ones are not. If you get it wrong, you, you may be ruined and lose your reputation. So on the one hand, they, they offer this sort of eligible, romantic, glamorous arrival in your area. But clearly, there was a lot of press that associated the militia with self-indulgence and corruption, and particularly with the loose morals, not of Jane Austen's class, the gentry, but of the high aristocracy who had so much money and so much power. And in 1778, when the uh, militia was enlarged, this is what happened at a place called Cox Heath Camp near London, where the militia all assembled in order to train and practice its manoeuvres. The Duke of Devonshire was famously there with many different tents full of different servants and chefs to attend to him. And his wife, the Duchess of Devonshire, who I expect your readers will know about, extremely glamorous. She was into politics, she wrote, and she also went beyond the usual roles of women. She appeared at election time, kissing the prospective voters to try and win them over to the Whig candidate. She didn't stay within the normal, proper conservative roles. So Georgiana, Duchess of Devonshire, was there with her husband at the camp, and she had female versions of of the male militia uniforms designed 
for her and her ladies to wear, and they went galloping up and down at the camp in these. Um, this was reported in the newspapers as somewhat of a gender reversal. Clearly, there was also a good deal of sleeping around at Coxheath camp between the different noble lords and ladies. There were also, just outside the camp, a whole area of, of prostitutes who had come from London to serve the desires of the ordinary militia soldiers who were there. So it got the reputation as being a bit of a riot, and there was an anonymous novel published about it on that basis, a romance, in 1779. So yes, the words militia and camp tended to signal sexual immorality, perhaps some cross-dressing, gender reversal. All these things made the arrival of the militia in your area, even 20 years later, dubious for more conservative people. I don't know, Tim. It makes sense to me that Kitty and Lydia want to hang out with them. This sounds like the fun group. But looking ahead to our reading actually for next week, there's an incident that's like barely mentioned at the very end of chapter 12. And I couldn't help but noticing it this time. There's an incident of flogging a mm. private in the militia. And while I was reading, I was I was shocked by it. And I was wondering if you could add any context. Because it's just this this like throwaway line. Um, flogging was a, a really big issue and a scandal in the years 1809-1810 that actually interested Jane Austen's brothers and was in all the newspapers. Mm. So she certainly knew about this. So it's another of these little unexploded bombs that you find in Jane Austen's novels where there's an innuendo, a little reference to something contemporary that would signal something to readers at the time that we've kind of lost track of now. This concerned the militia in the east of England, in a place called Ely. What had happened was that the officers had been withholding some of the pay of the ordinary militiamen, who, to remind you, were people who really couldn't avoid being called up for the militia. They couldn't afford to pay someone else to go instead of them, and were often just country labourers, so these were poor people. Some of their pay was being withheld from them because the officers were using it, apparently, to buy their equipment. Only it was contended that they weren't actually using it to buy the equipment, they were using it to party. So it was an issue of corruption. And when the ordinary militiamen in Ely protested about this, this was declared by their officers a mutiny, which is clearly very severe in military terms, and they were each ordered to be flogged 500 times, whipped 500 times. Oh, my God. Yeah, which brings you pretty near death. It's a savage punishment. There had been flogging in the army. That wasn't anything new in Britain. But these, of course, were not regular soldiers. They were amateur soldiers just serving for a couple of months. So the radical writer and journalist William Cobbett got hold of this and protested about it. And the conservative authorities at the time then had him put on trial for seditious libel, which was something like what we now call treason. And in a bit of a rigged trial with a rigged jury, he was found guilty and sentenced to two years in jail. But whilst this was going on, before it came to trial, he used the fact that he was going to be tried as an opportunity to publicise the case. And so he went round the country speaking at meetings that he called. And these meetings 
were very popular. They had a lot of people who attended were not rabble-rousers or people on the extreme of politics, but middle-ranking, middle-of-the-road country gentry. So a number of people that Austin's brothers knew and associated with attended the meeting in Hampshire. And so that little reference in the novel, A Private Was Flogged, I think is hinting at the fact that from the perspective of militia officers, this is totally unimportant. They're morally desensitised. But we might have a different perspective on it if we know about what a huge scandal it was causing at the time. And I think that's the thing about Austin for me, is that these are very slight and delicate allusions so that she's not writing propaganda novels where she makes the point again and again and again. These are a matter of delicate, ironic allusions that allow us to gradually, even perhaps without realising it at first, acquire a sense of judgment uh, of different characters. Absolutely. Tim, thank you so much for talking to me today and for joining us. And listeners, I really do encourage you to check out Sighing for a Soldier if you want to learn more from Tim. You've been listening to Live from Pemberley. We're a small show, so we need your support to run. If you can, please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash hot and bothered rom pod. We are Not Sorry Production. Our executive producer is Ariana Nettleman, and we are distributed by Acast. Thanks, as always, to our Jane Level patrons, Viscountess Elise Kunagaratnam of Unicornia, Baroness Gretchen Sneegas of Breakfast Carbston, Knight Molly Reel of Worcestershire Sauce, the Countess of Kristen Hall, Dame Leah B. of Pickleshire, Dame Becky Boo of Tiara Landia, and Duchess Betty Higgins of Bubble Bath. And I will say, Elise and Kristen, Lauren and I were just able to spend some time with you in the West Yorkshire Moors on our pilgrimage, and it was a delight, madams. Special thanks this week to Tim Fulford, Aisha Ramachandran, Sandra McPherson for talking to us. You'll hear more from them throughout our season. Thanks also to Laura Glass, Gabby Iori, AJ Uramas, Julia Argy, Nikki Zoltan, Stephanie Paulsell, and each and every one of our patrons. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.